Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be will will be read from Ecclesiastes 12:11 through 14. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed on the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of of making many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh and the end of the matter. And all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment for every secret thing, whether good or evil. Good morning. Whoever's running slides, can you put the chorus of that song back up? Homer asked me before I walked up here, are you going to add anything to your sermon in second service that you didn't do in the first service? I said, no, probably not. <laughs> Two seconds later, we're singing this song. There is a God. He is alive. In him we live and we survive. From dust our God created man. Slide. <laughs> he is our God, the great I am. Do you believe that? If you believe that God is alive and that he is working still in this world, that he created man and through God and he created his son, he sent his son to this earth to die for our sins. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Truth is important, isn't it? You know, our elders stand up here every week and they hold up this Bible and say, this is the Bible, this is the book by which we go by. We believe it's true, and everything that we do, everything that we believe, everything that we say comes from God's word because we believe it's truth and thereby we're going to follow it. Do you believe that? One of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride. Classic. There's a scene in that movie that depicts the three, we'll call them criminals, standing at the top of a cliff, looking down at the dread pirate Roberts. I won't reveal his identity to ruin any spoilers for anybody. They're looking down at him. They had just cut the rope that he was climbing up. He's chasing them because they stole the princess, and he's trying to get them back. And they cut the rope, and he falls, and he's clinging to the side of the cliff. And Vizzini, who's the little, short, bald uh, Sicilian man, runs up, and he goes, He's not dead! Inconceivable! <laughs> that inconceivable word is kind of his catchphrase. He says that throughout the movie. And Inigo Montoya, who's played by Mandy Patinkin, looks at him, and he goes... You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> there is a lot going on in our society today, in our culture. You can turn on the news, you can go to social media, and you can see that there are several words that people are using today that I don't think mean what they think it means. That line plays in my head every time I hear someone today say something like, that's my truth, or that's gospel truth, when in fact it doesn't refer to the gospel at all, nor is it truth at all. Truth is a word that many people either don't know the meaning, they choose to ignore the meaning, or they're trying their hardest to redefine it in order to fit their agenda. 
Similar to words that we find in Scripture, like the word baptized. Man has worked for centuries to redefine the word baptized. The word baptized in the original Greek means to immerse in water. Nothing more, nothing less. But man has worked to redefine that over the course of time. We have to rely on God's word to understand truth. This has been the focus of our middle school class this quarter. And I have to say, we've had some pretty good discussions about what they're experiencing regarding this topic and how to approach it from a biblical perspective. So if you have children or grandchildren who are middle school and they're not attending that class, I want to encourage you to send them to that class. But if you have kids or grandkids in that class, talk to them about what we're talking about in there. Talk to them about the things that they're experiencing in their life that is redefining what truth is and how they can properly address it. When we consider biblical words and terms and their meanings, I think it's important to note what John records at the beginning of his gospel account in John chapter 1, verse 1. If you, haven't, if you have your Bibles, turn to John. We'll be in that for uh, a lot of our lesson this morning. And while you're turning there, let me just pause for a moment and, and share this announcement. Uh, as a reminder, our calendar meeting is tonight for the youth group. Many of you uh, have received the calendar uh, and hopefully have been making plans to attend that and sign up to host youth events, and we're looking forward to that time tonight at 4 o'clock in the EOC. After that, Dr. David Shannon from Freed Hardeman University will be our guest speaker tonight who will be preaching a wonderful lesson that I'm looking forward to about uh, multi-generational mentorship. And I, I told my wife, I said, I wish that lesson was happening before the calendar meeting, but it's all right. Hopefully that'll encourage anybody to maybe sign up afterwards. But nonetheless, I hope you can join us for that uh, this evening. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When we think about Mandy Patinkin and what he said referring to that Word, he's referring, of course, to Vizzini's inconceivable, but that Word that a lot of people are trying to redefine, that they're misusing or misrepresenting today, is Jesus Christ. That Word that we see in the Bible in John chapter 1, the Word is Jesus. There are many who twist God's Word to fit their own desires, to fit man-made doctrines, and they're doing that and they're trying to make Jesus fit into the world and culture. Have you heard the phrase, the Jesus that I worship, or the Jesus that I know? Oftentimes when I hear that, they're referring to a Jesus that doesn't exist in Scripture. Jesus said himself that he is not of the world, and his followers are not to be of the world either. He prays this in his high priestly prayer in the garden in John chapter 17. Then in chapter 18, as he's standing before Pilate being tried, the topic of truth comes up again. This time he says that his kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus, the king of a kingdom, is not of this world. Jesus is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. And those who follow him and hear his words of truth, they're not to be of the world either. So why is man trying so hard to fit Jesus and the kingdom of God into a world-shaped box? Because in order to fit Jesus and his kingdom into the world, you have to do a lot of trimming to Jesus and his kingdom and the word to make it fit into the world. Because it's not of the world. Truth and Jesus go hand in hand. Denying the truth found in the Bible is often to deny Christ himself. 
We are called as the Lord's servants, as his disciples, to not be quarrelsome. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 through 26, be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The fact that correction is needed, the fact that we have to point them in the direction of truth means that there is but one truth, and man can't redefine it. Man can't change it. It's already been set. When Jesus appeared before Pilate after telling the leader that his kingdom of which some called him king, is not a worldly kingdom. The subject of truth was discussed. If you're in John, look at chapter 18, starting in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate then says to him, what is truth? You know, that's where the scene ends. It says Pilate walks out. That's the end of the conversation. When I picture this in my mind, I picture Jesus and Pilate standing there talking about this, and Pilate kind of snarkily just says, what is truth, and walks out. That's what the world is doing still today. The world has been doing that since the garden. There is nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes said. This is not a new phenomenon. The things that people are trying to change the definition of truth around some of them may be new, but the concept isn't new. Jesus claimed to bear witness to the truth. His words are truth, and his followers, those who listen to him, are of the truth. If they listen, which includes obedience, in other words, you have to hear the words of the teacher and live them, you have to hear them and do them, and then Pilate asks this question, what is truth? Today, many people sound a lot like Pilate. When they hear the truth, They dismiss it. Ah, what is truth? That's your truth. That's not my truth. A Barna Research Group survey on what Americans believe asked the question, is there absolute truth? 66% of adults responded that they believe there is no such thing as absolute truth, that different people can define truth in conflicting ways and still be correct. That's two-thirds of the people surveyed. 72%, almost three-fourths of those ages 18 to 25 express this belief. That's a lot of people. Some of them are probably Christians. In a series of more than 20 interviews conducted at random at a large university, people were asked if there was such thing as absolute truth. Truth that is true across all times and cultures for all people, all but one, so 19 out of 20, responded along these lines. Truth is whatever you believe. There is no absolute truth. 
If there were such a thing as absolute truth, how could we know what it is? And the fourth one really gets me. People who believe in absolute truth are dangerous. What is the Christian perspective regarding truth? Is truth whatever you believe? Can we know what absolute truth is? I think to get to the, the, the heart of this and to truly understand a Christian perspective, we have to summarize first the two basic views regarding truth. The first view, truth corresponds to reality. This is referred to as the correspondence view of truth. A statement is true if and only if it corresponds to or agrees with factual reality. This view presupposes a law of logic called the law of bivalence. It's defined as any unambiguous declarative statement. It must be either true or false. It cannot be both. It cannot be neither. In other words, the statement, I am standing in front of you, is a statement of absolute truth because it's related to reality. It can be proven true because, hi, I'm here, or it can be proven false if I'm not actually standing here. But I am standing here, right? Are we awake? I am standing here, right? Okay, I'm just making sure. The correspondence view of truth holds that propositional or declarative statements are subject to verification and falsification. A statement can be proven false if it can be shown to disagree with objective reality. In other words, the statement, the world is flat, or the earth is flat, that it's not a globe, it's not a sphere, that can be proven false. Based on photographs that we have from space, based on math, Based on logic, it can be proven false. I've never been to space. I can't personally say that I have witnessed the curvature of the earth. Now, what I believe is the curvature of the earth, when I fly, you can kind of see it on the horizon if you fly high enough. When we flew to Zambia, we were up pretty high, and you could see there is a curve on the horizon. But I've never been to space. I've never seen the whole picture. But other people have. And they have some authority. And so it can be proven false. Here's another example from our middle school class uh, just last week. We were discussing sources of truth as we illustrated this definition of absolute truth and the connection to reality and provability. I asked, what are different sources of truth that we have today that we can rely on? And of course, they all gave the good Bible class answer of the Bible, right? Good job. Yes. What else? What else exists out there that can prove truth? And the, the answer, science, came up. I said, okay, so what has science shown us that is provable truth? And I'm happy to report none of them said evolution. So, But they said things like atoms. I said, okay, atoms, that's good. Science has proven the existence of atoms. Atoms, of course, making up elements. They have protons, they have neutrons and electrons and all those things. So science has proven that through experimentation that those things exist. That is an absolute truth. And then they said science has proven biological sex. Uh-oh. Yes. 
Science has proven biological sex. You can't change that. You can't make up a different truth related to biological sex. There is male, there is female, period. There is no more than that. A man can't become a woman, a woman can't become a man. Those weren't my words. I believe it, but that was the words of the class. Also, gold star to them. Then they said math. Math is something that science has given us that is provable. Ah, but today there's, there are those who are saying that math is actually not an absolute truth. There are those who believe that two plus two can equal five. You laugh, I'm not kidding. If you take two Bibles and stack them on top of two Bibles, you can count them, one, two, three, four, and see that there are four Bibles. But there are those who decry this and say, that's how you were taught, and that's what you believe, but one could be taught incorrectly, or one could be taught differently to say that two plus two equals five, and both can be right. What? That makes no sense. I can't stack two Bibles on top of two Bibles and find five Bibles. That doesn't, that's not how it works. That's how far people are going these days to decry truth. Then one of the students, and I'm not going to embarrass her by naming her, but she brought up something I'd never heard of before. Quarks. Not corks, C-O-R-K-S, but quarks, Q-U-A-R-K-S. I have no idea what that is. I know what quarks are. I have plenty of those. But I don't know what quarks are. And she described them to me. She said, they're the things that make up the protons and neutrons in an atom. I said, oh, I don't believe you. This is a good teaching moment. I don't believe you. You're telling me this. I don't, you're a middle schooler. I, you're probably way smarter than me anyways. But I don't believe you because I can't prove that. You're just telling me something. And so I told her I would research it. And I did and found out that quarks are real things. Science has done experimentation to find that quarks are in fact the smallest thing in the universe. But what's interesting about that is the truth for the longest time was that atoms were the smallest thing in the universe. Then they did more experiments and found that in fact there are smaller things than atoms and those are protons and neutrons. And then they did more experiments to find that there were quarks that make up protons and neutrons. So does that mean the truth has changed? No, it just means their understanding of the truth has changed. It hasn't changed the truth. Quarks have always existed. They just didn't know it. They didn't research it. I mentioned authority. Authority is an important element to truth. Who is the one that's speaking and giving the statement? That can help us determine truth as well. Do they have evidence? Are there corresponding accounts to validate a claim? You see, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, which we talked about the last time I preached, Eve did not question the authority of the snake or the serpent. God said, don't do this. Don't eat of this tree. Everything else is good. Don't eat of this tree. And then a serpent comes along and says, ah, you can do it. She didn't say, now hold on a second. Who are you to say differently from the guy who created everything what gives you the right to change that? She didn't ask that question, did she? She just took it. Okay, that's my truth now. And what was that? 
sin. The law of Moses required two or three witnesses to validate a charge or accusation, and today it's really the same. I'm not a lawologist or a legalologist or whatever they're called. I think they're called lawyers. But I'm pretty sure that a good lawyer who's trying a case or a prosecutor is going to go out and find multiple witnesses to corroborate an account. Because otherwise, it's going to be really hard to hold up the account of one person in court. Evidence and eyewitness testimony are all essential. This view of truth, this correspondence view of truth that it's related to reality, that has been held by the vast majority of philosophers and theologians throughout history until recently. The second view of truth is that truth is relative and it's not absolute. This is called the relativistic view of truth, and it means that whatever is true depends on the views of persons or cultures, not on whether statements correspond to objective reality. For a statement to be true simply means that a person or culture believes it to be true. People with this view of truth say things like, well, if that's true for you, this is my truth, that's your truth, and we can't judge other people's truths. We can't judge other cultures. Poet Steve Turner wrote a parody of this attitude, and he called it Creed. In part, he said, I believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly, the universe will readjust, history will alter. I believe that there is no absolute truth, excepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. And I'll let you digest that. That's, that's pretty deep. But when truth is deemed dependent upon the person or culture holding the belief, anything be, can become true. For example, one person can say, I'm a human. And another person, let's say it's their brother, came from the same mother and father, says, I'm a cat. Both statements will be true if they accurately express the sentiments of their speakers. That's the relativistic view of truth. This view seems to advance tolerance and civility, but it does so at the expense of logic, at the expense of truth, and quite frankly, the expense of love. The very definition of human and cat precludes the possibility that a human can be a cat. Here's what happens with making truth relative. I want to take this example from our middle school class a couple weeks ago. This marker is blue. Now, at first, when I said this, the whole class agreed. Yep, that's a blue marker. And then the arguments started coming up. Well, it has white on the outside, so it's not all blue. I didn't say it was all blue. I said the marker is blue, meaning if I write with it on the board, it's going to write in blue ink. Well, what if you're colorblind? Aha, good question. If you're colorblind and you can't see the color blue, does that make this not blue? No, it does not. It just means you can't see blue. There are two truths being, being expressed in that statement of I'm colorblind. The truth is it's still blue, and the other truth is you're colorblind. That's the truth. That doesn't change the color of the marker. It just changes the understanding. Your personal scenario doesn't dictate the reality of the world around you. Just as your personal experience doesn't trump the truth. Then they started bringing up other silly arguments. Oh, there's a shade of periwinkle in it. I don't know if it's true blue or royal blue. 
all of those statements, every argument that they issued, what they were doing in order to cause chaos and stump the teacher, they began changing the context of my statement. They introduced offsetting arguments that though may be accurate in some way, still don't change the truth of the scenario. This doesn't mean absolute truth doesn't exist. It means that people will always fight against the truth they want to reject in order for them to be right in their opinion. Those who say there is no absolute truth, they make decisions every day based on things they believe are true and false. For example, they turn on a light switch. Turning on the light switch, they believe the light bulb's gonna come on. That's an absolute truth. Light switch on, light bulb comes on. They believe in the truth of electricity. They drive a car believing in the effectiveness of the engine. No one flying would wanna be directed by a navigator who didn't believe in the truth of their instruments or the truth of cardinal directions. No one undergoing brain surgery would want to be operated on by a surgeon who doesn't believe that there are true things about the human brain and false things about the human brain. I don't know about you, but I would not be okay with a brain surgeon operating on me if they believed there was a small alien-like creature inside my head with two joysticks in either hand controlling all of my movements. If there are no absolutes, then there is no right and wrong. I can kill you, I can steal from you, I can lie to you, and you can't say it's wrong. Because if I believe that I should do that, and I succeed at doing that, then it works for me, and it has become my personal truth, and who are you to judge me? Judge. <clears throat> you keep using that word. I do not think you... I do not think it means what you think it means. That's another one of those words that people use today, isn't it? If I was preaching a sermon series on this topic, I, we'd probably cover that in a different sermon. But Richard John Newhouse wrote, in the absence of truth, power is the only game in town. That's really what's at factor here. People are trying to change the truth to become powerful. Despite its absurdity, this view of truth has become the darling of all who want to be free to do whatever they want. And quite frankly, it hurts my brain. It hurts my brain to try and wrap my head around all the things that are changing, it seems like, every single day. I know what's true, but for some reason, the world has just lost their mind, and they keep changing everything. Christians have historically affirmed the correspondence view of truth meaning truth relates to reality. And it's for good reason, because it's consistent with the biblical view of truth. There are three words in Scripture for truth in the Greek. The first is aletheis. It means unconcealed or manifest. It's actual. It's true to fact. And then there's another word that's aletheinos, which denotes true in the sense of real, ideal, or genuine. And then the word for truth is aletheia, which objectively relates to the reality lying at the basis of an appearance, the manifested, verifiable essence of a matter. Subjectively, it's talking about truthfulness. It's about your character. It's not just verbal, but sincerity and integrity of character. When the Bible speaks of truth, it describes that which corresponds to reality, what is factual and absolute, not relative. Why? Because it was created. 
it was created with a purpose. And man is trying to change the purpose. And in order to do that, you have to change the reality. When we consider the Bible as a source of truth, we must, of course, put what we learn to the test of Scripture. Everything that I'm saying to you this morning, everything that Eric preaches from the pulpit, if you hear something in class, you have the responsibility to go to the Word and research it and study it. Don't take what I'm saying as the truth. You have to research it and make sure that it fits with the Bible. The Bible is its own validation source. The source of the Bible, being God, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, is the ultimate authority. And when we talk about we follow the Bible, some people say, well, that's just a book. No, it's not. It's a compilation of 66 books written by 40 different people over 100, or 1,500 years. Does that make it the Word of God? No, not, a, not at all. It means it's worth considering, though, because there's never been anything like it in the course of history. Well, let's talk about history. For centuries, archaeology has used the Old Testament and the New Testament to find buildings, people, civilizations, and kings that they thought didn't exist, and suddenly they do exist because the Bible said it. They went there, they dug it up, and poof, it's there. It's real. Oh, how about that? Does that make it the Word of God? No. It means it's historically accurate. It means that real people accounted for real events in history, and they wrote down what they saw, so it's worth considering, right? And then God shows up, and he says, you know, I'm going to show that I'm not beholden to linear time. I'm going to give you prophecies to highlight a coming kingdom, a coming leader, God arriving in the flesh. I'm going to tell you exactly what it's going to look like. I'm going to tell you in 300 different ways, 300 prophecies that he provides to man to know exactly what it looks like. And then a man showed up named Jesus, and he said, I am. He said, I am that guy. And he fulfilled all of those prophecies. That's impossible. Mathematically speaking, it's not possible. The probability, according to mathologists, that Jesus would fill just eight of the 300 prophecies, just eight, the probability of that is 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros after it. I don't even know what that number's called. That's a big number. That's just eight prophecies. If you up that to 48 prophecies, that's 10 to the 157th power. You can't even put that on a PowerPoint slide and be able to see it. That's just 48 of the 300 prophecies that were written about Jesus, yet he fulfilled every single one of them. The chance of that happening a random man in history fulfilling all 300 prophecies of the Old Testament of the coming Messiah is one in a trillion, 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 trillion. That's 13 trillions. It's not possible. It's not mathematically probable that that can happen. Does that make it God's word? I think it does. I think it tells us exactly what the Creator is doing, what he has done, and what he's going to do in the future. Those who decry Scripture as the Word of God, they say, yeah, but that's easy. It was all written after Jesus. But that's to deny truth. Because historically, you can go back and look at truth, and you can go back and know that, that the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, was written 250 years before Jesus was ever born. 
all of the prophecies that were written about Jesus 250 years before he was born, translated into Greek. God has all authority. He is the creator. He exists beyond linear time. And Jesus, the word, the truth, was present at the beginning. And the world was created through him. And that by him, the world would also be saved. The fulfillment of these prophecies in Jesus, the Son of God, witnessed by more than two or three witnesses, mind you, is evidence of their reality. We don't have to be there to see it. Jesus said, blessed are you who have seen and believed, but more so those who have not seen and believed. We don't get the joy of seeing Jesus face to face, of experiencing his miracles, but we do have the joy of having the inspired word of God to study, to learn from, and to verify through eyewitness testimony that Jesus lived, that he died, and he was raised on the third day. And that it was all to conquer death so that we could be free from sin, that those who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, that those who obey and follow his teachings and commands, including the command to be baptized into his death, to be raised to walk in a newness of life, that we have a hope of eternal life. That's true. But it's up to you to study that and to learn that and to apply it. It's up to you to study and learn the teachings of Jesus. And what you're doing today, you're doing that, but it doesn't stop when services end. You continue your study and grow. There are several biblical statements regarding truth. If you're taking notes and you want to write these down because you want to study them, do so. God is a God of truth. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. And God's, God cannot lie. According to Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, and Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. God is truth. God cannot lie. We could end there, but we won't. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus is full of truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. And spoke the truth. John chapter 8, verse 45. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and guided the apostles into all the truth. John chapter 14, verse 17. John chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus says that would happen, and then we see it happen in Acts. Acts chapter 2, we see that prophecy that Jesus made, that the Spirit would guide them into all truth, come to fruition. The Spirit came upon them, and Peter, of course, gave his first sermon. The Word of God is truth, Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 17. The judgments of God are according to truth. Psalm 96, verse 13. Romans chapter 2, verse 2. Christians should walk in the truth as revealed by Jesus, including the standard of morality that he taught. Paul details this in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. That's what we talked about in our middle school class today, morality. What sets your moral compass? It should be the truth of God's word. If the world is setting your moral compass, it's probably going to be wrong. Christians should patiently teach others the truth, as we saw earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But we also have to understand what the Bible teaches in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, that people are going to turn their ears away from truth. They've been doing it since Paul wrote those words to Timothy, and they're going to continue doing it until Jesus returns. In verses 3 through 4 in 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Remember, the word for truth in the Bible relates to real reality. 
things that can be verified. All of those verses, and much more could be said, as the Bible reveals so much about what is truth, but all of those verses that I just outlined there, the word truth means real. It's not subject to opinion. If it's subject to opinion, the only opinion that matters is God's because he sets the truth. He is the authority figure on truth. The Bible tells us what is right and what is wrong. And we could go on for hours talking about all the things in this world, the sin that is running rampant. All of it is due to the lack of people seeking and standing up for absolute truth. That's why we're teaching this class to the middle schoolers so they can learn what absolute truth is and stand firm in it when they are faced with disagreements and do so in a biblical sense with grace, with understanding, and with love. So what is truth? That's what Pilate asked, right? What is truth? Truth is what is real. God is real. He is alive. In him we live and we survive. God reveals what is real. God is truth, and what he says is the truth. Call yourself what you may, but you cannot be a Christian unless you hold the biblical view of truth. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe in moral absolutes of right and wrong, because God has established them in his word. You cannot be a Christian unless you accept Jesus and his word as the ultimate source of truth, especially in regards to morality and to salvation. For those willing to accept Jesus as that ultimate source of truth, they will be greatly blessed. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Disciple, learner, follower of teachings meaning you have to do the teachings, not just hear them, but do them as well. If you abide in my word, the word living in you, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, there's another movie line. I've never seen the movie, but I've seen the line num numerous times. I believe it's uh, Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth. The world can handle the truth. They just have to listen to it. They have to research it and study it and ultimately believe it. If the world can't handle the truth, it's because they're too comfortable in their sin that goes against what the truth says. Then the Jews answered him, John chapter 8, verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and you, ne you have never been enslaved to, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And what sets us free? The truth. The truth that the son has brought to us. The son does set us free. And he did so by shedding his blood on the cross. That is the required sacrifice of blood as established in the law, the Old Testament, which, remember, was translated into Greek 250 years before Jesus was born. Jesus was a Jew. He followed the law. And as such, a sacrifice for the atonement of sin had to occur. And his sacrifice of blood, as our high priest, 
as established in the law, was given. He willingly gave himself up to face that pain and the sorrow of death, only to defeat it three days later, as was prophesied. By overcoming death, he, overcame, he claimed victory for all those who believe in him as the Son of God and obey his commands. If you believe that truth, that truth will set you free. It's important. If you know the truth, then you have to allow the truth to set you free. You have to obey the true words of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, he who believes and is immersed in water will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. Some will say that the latter part of that verse is the only one that you need to pay attention to. You don't have to pay attention to the first part of the verse that says you have to be immersed in water. You just have to believe. Remember, trimming things away from the word of God in order to fit it into the world. But belief doesn't set you free. Believing the truth doesn't set you free. Jesus says you have to abide in his words, meaning you have to live his words. You have to put those words into practice because belief isn't enough. Because even the demons believe. James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and they shudder. The demons believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They proclaimed it. That didn't save them. Belief requires action. Our works, our good deeds cannot save us in and of themselves. And some decry that the immersion in the waters of baptism is a work of man. But I want to tell you this morning, that's not what the truth of Scripture says. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, I believe, tells us what work is being done in baptism. Listen to this. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without human hands. Not man, but something else. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Baptism is not a work of man. It is a work of God. It is commanded of man to do this. If the command is do something, you do it. You don't say, well, I know I was told to do something, but I'm just going to believe differently. I'm going to change the truth of what Scripture tells me, and I'm going to do what I think is right. How many of you have kids and, have done, and their ki your kids have done what they think is right, and it's not right? That was me as a kid. Sometimes still, my wife is shaking her head, yes. It is not a work of man. It is a work of God, and it cannot be done unless by faith. By confessing your belief in the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's something we do. As Jesus said, that confession that Jesus is the Son of God, he said, that is the rock on which my church is established. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The Spirit who guided the apostles into all truth and gave Peter the words of his sermon in Acts chapter 2 gave the truth that repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins is required in order to be saved. If you believe the truth of God's word, if you believe that the Bible is God's word, then you have to obey it as it is written. If you believe the truth of God's word and you know that you're not abiding in that truth, then make the decision today to repent of your sins to change your thinking. That's what repentance is. Change your mind. 
change your mind toward God and make the decision today to repent of your sin, to obey the word of God, and confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and be immersed in water to be united with Christ in a death like his, and to be raised to walk in a newness of life. We want to assist you with that this morning. We want to help you in any way that we can. If that is your desire this morning to obey the truth of Scripture, don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't say, oh, I'll wait till a rainy day or I'll wait till the right song is sung. Don't wait. The Bible says our life is but a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Our scripture reading this morning from Ecclesiastes, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is surrounded by Solomon looking at everything around him. He had everything, everything. And he said, all of it is futile. Vanity of vanities. Is no, vanity is used like some 30 times throughout that book. That word means a vapor. It means something that can't be grasped. If you've ever been in a fog and you've reached out and tried to grab the fog and open your hand, you don't have fog in your hand, do you? No. That's what he's talking about. None of it is, is, is worth it. It's all pointless. The thing that's not pointless, he says at the end of Ecclesiastes, which was our scripture reading this morning, fear God and keep his commandments. Everything else is futile. Fear God and keep his commandments. If you fear God, you're going to trust God. If you keep his commandments, then you're going to read what those commandments are, and you're going to follow them, and you're going to do them. And we pray that your heart will be turned to do that this morning. If you've abandoned the truth, even after you've received it, well, the Bible has something to say about that as well in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. It says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. If you have turned your back on the truth that you have already believed and you have followed and obeyed, come back. Turn back. Repent and seek the forgiveness of the Father this morning. If we can assist you with this or any other need that you have, now is the time that you can come forward while we stand and sing.